Hello everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. When we look at the advances in energy technology in oil and gas, renewables, nuclear and other emerging sectors, there is a clear and visible evidence that the advances in technology has changed the geopolitics of energy industry dramatically and rapidly. It is due to the advances in energy technology that nations have made a very convincing move from an era of energy resource scarcity to an era of energy resource abundance. In addition, nations have moved from a geographical concentration of energy resources to universality of its excess. And perhaps the most important development is there is no longer monopoly power of oil and gas as the stiff competition between shale, oil, renewables, nuclears, and many other sectors of energy is intensifying and becoming very rewarding to consumers. Having said that, the rapidly changing geopolitics of energy security is still a harsh reminder that the supposedly golden age of energy security where each and every nation will have the ability to secure affordable, reliable, and sustainable energy supplies to maintain the respective nation's power requirement is still perhaps more of an illusion. Even today, in a digital global age, energy security is a complex challenge and is very unique and different for each and every nation. So when we evaluate energy security, the biggest obstacle to energy security is not a lack of energy resources. There are plenty of resources. It is the policy choices nations make for better or for worse that have the largest impact on each nation's energy security. While understanding policy and advances in technology are very important, it is also important to understand, evaluate, and manage the energy security pressure points across nations that choke the security of the global energy markets, especially the production, transportation, and distribution of energy. Climate preparedness has become a very important factor of energy security. However, in the interest of the time allotted for this session of Risk Roundup, climate preparedness will be left for discussion for another day. To discuss the energy security risk further, I'm delighted to welcome John Saucer on Risk Roundup. John is the Vice President, Research and Analysis at Mobius Risk Group. Welcome, John. We're delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Uh, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Wonderful, John. So what? before we start, uh, for the benefit of our global viewers and listeners, let's talk about what is a secure energy system. What is a secure energy system? Well, a secure energy system would be a system that would allow uh, not just uh, the lo locating the energy, but delivering the energy to consumers in a uh, smooth and efficient uh, a fashion that's not sensitive to disruption, uh, whether those disruptions come from weather-related events, economic-related events, or geopolitical events. That's a very good explanation, John. So if we look at the energy security globally, what common threats do you see at this point? Um, I would say uh, on the uh, affirmative side, you know, there's uh, abundant evidence that uh, shale resources are going to be discovered uh, pretty much everywhere around the globe. The only places that we don't have uh, meaningful measurements on shale reserves is places where uh, that said, at the end of the day, uh, transporting those molecules, whether they're natural gas, oil, or refined products to the markets uh, they're needed, will prove to be more challenging. 
Uh, that will require a lot of investment. Uh, that will also require um, uh, political decisions and geopolitical uh, negotiation decisions and moving those across uh, territories that haven't had uh, a precedent of doing it before or may not be on the most uh, friendly terms uh, historically. Yes, no, that's that's very true. I agree to that. Now, you talked about shale. Now, if you look at the shale uh, sector, especially in the United States, we have made a lot of progress. And as you said that, you know, we have found a lot of, you know, reserves all over the world. But I, I from what I hear that not everyone, it looks like not all the nations are probably going to benefit from having that shale. And uh, I'm trying to understand what are the reasons behind it. Can you share some lights to that? Uh, yes, I would think there it comes to the issue of stability and confidence of where you're going to put your uh, investments. Uh, whether you're a U.S. company or an international firm, you know, you want your investments in an environment that has a uh, uh, dependable rule of law, uh, dependable taxation, dependable accounting uh, parameters. Uh, so the U.S. and North America has always been a magnet. There's been a great deal of discussion about shale reserves uh, in Europe and places like Poland. Uh, there's been a great deal of discussion about shale reserves in Latin America, like places uh, like Argentina. Uh, but both those have unique challenges. And uh, right now, as we've seen, you know, people have flocked to sort of uh, the U.S. and Canada because I think it'd be very friendly business climate. I see. So it's more of the environment or the policies of the governments or the, you know, geopolitical risk and uh, terrorism and all that probably that plays a role. Uh, it's nothing to do about the technology or ability to get the shale gas out. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Yes, I think that's absolutely correct because a lot of the advances technologically, uh, scientifically, and efficiency-wise we've made over the last years would could be applied in other places. Uh, again, it's, it's confidence in where you're going to have your investment for all those reasons. Uh, I think even in the U.S., you can see um, there's a fairly significant difference between even certain states. Obviously, there's been a lot more investment uh, in Texas, which is a very energy-friendly state, uh, great resources. But even if you look at the Northeast uh, and the Marcellus and Utica shales, that natural gas, that prolific basin, there's a very large differential between uh, what you can do in Ohio, what you can do in West Virginia, relative to what you can do in Pennsylvania, and especially in places like New York. There's a lot of untapped shale resources in neighboring states, and that's all um, untapped because of uh, regulatory and government decisions. Right, right. No, that's very true. Now, each nation, John, from what I'm uh, hearing is that they prioritize and address the triple imperatives of energy security, that is accessibility, affordability, and sustainability in different ways. Can you explain to our global viewers and listeners why energy security is very different to uh, different nations? I mean, what what is security to us is not security to China, is not security to probably Canada or Mexico. Can you share some light to that? Well, I think part of it is that uh, so much uh, in the case of history, but even true now, a lot of the abundance of energy resources aren't necessarily in the consuming markets. Uh, in the developing markets where you're seeing the demand development. So transportation became key, whether it's pipeline transportation, waterborne transportation, what have you. And as we've seen historically, you know, pipelines can be vulnerable to a lot of issues. Um, in this case, not so much weather, but certainly geopolitics. You know, we've seen that uh, in Latin America and Colombia uh, with their pipelines and the strife they've had with the uh, uh, guerrilla factions there. Uh, we've seen it in uh, northern Iraq recently uh, with uh, the Kurdish regime moving barrels into Turkey. 
Um, and there's a lot of concern about that going forward because a lot of the abundance of scale, whether it's in China or uh, in Central Asia, is going to have to move by pipeline across long and unproven routes, I would say it that way. Yes, yes, no, that is very true. Now, uh, technical and technology innovations from shale gas to oil have revolutionized this nation, our United States energy outlook. Now, the United States is perhaps uh, the world's fastest growing oil producer, achieving what would have been unimaginable just a few years ago. Now, the global energy investment climate, it seems that that is also shifting very rapidly. What is the impact of shale on the global energy markets from your perspective? Well, um, you know, I'll, I'll first address price. With uh, the drop in prices over the last uh, 18 to 24 months, we've seen global capital expenditures cut anywhere from 20 25%. And that's going to have long-term ramifications because there's going to be a huge lag time going forward uh, to get that dial back up. But in the case of shale, I think people want uh, dependability. Uh, and I think um, that's why the focus has been on shale is more like mining. It's more like manufacturing. You sort of take the exploration out of exploration and production. It's about the entities or the companies or the capital that can most efficiently manufacture those molecules and get them to the market. So I think that's key. Um, and I think that's one reason that even within the U.S., there's been sort of a migration in capital away from the complex, deep water, long lag time projects to the uh, more predictable, shorter duration, shale-oriented development. And I think you'll see that with the international majors too going forward. Right, right, right. Now, the breakthrough nuclear deal with Iran it seems it has major implications for global energy markets and also the regional power balances. What impact do you see on the global markets and energy security overall? Well, I think it'll, it's uh, good news for Europe in that uh, much of the market share uh, that uh, Iran lost during the period of sanctions was market share in Europe and they will in fact be competing to capture that. So that will benefit you know, the importers and the oil consumers in Europe quite a bit. In terms of the global marketplace, I think the impact on prices has been less than expected. I think that's partially derived from the fact that, uh, A, uh, Iran has produced, uh, I think, a bit less than what people were uh, anticipating in 2016 so far. Uh, and B, uh, as is always the case, there's always surprises. And again, we've had some geopolitical and supply developments in uh, OPEC, whether it's in Nigeria, northern Iraq, uh, Venezuela, that has sort of counteracted the impact on markets of these Iranian barrels coming back uh, to the global marketplace. I see, I see. Now, there are some who say that the three greatest threats of modern energy security are complacency, uncertainty, and ideology. Now, nations have forever tried to manage the complex challenges of energy security. Do you think because of these three threats that the main threats, I would say, the greatest threats, do you think that nations would ever be able to see a real energy security? Um, I think that uh, probably the technological component <laughs> will be the greatest uh, contributor to that because uh, if we make bat uh, breakthroughs, whether it's with nuclear technology, uh, energy storage and battery technology, superconductivity, that will benefit everybody uniformly and I think that'll be sort of outside the realm of politics. Uh, when you try to um, strip away um, uh, regional strife, uh, religious strife, uh, just long-term grudges, for lack of a better term, that's, that's much more difficult. I think that would be um, 
that would take a lot more time, and we see that bubble up to this day, and I think that will continue. It may not be in the same places, it may not be over the same assets, but that's something that's sort of with the history of mankind that's going to be with us for a while, but I think it's the technological advances that will make the biggest difference in yes, way. Yes. That is true. That is true. Technology will make a big difference. Now, from your perspective, how secure are European gas markets at this point? European gas markets? Yes. Uh, I think they're far more secure they've been in a while because I think what you're seeing in European gas markets are, A, uh, the Russians know that they will have to compete going forward. Uh, their pipeline gas will have to head to head with uh, natural gas that will be sourced as LNG on the U.S. Gulf Coast and move into European markets. I think they also are already facing pretty stiff competition in Europe from uh, LNG that's being sourced in Qatar. Uh, and I think in those two cases, uh, that will make for a more commercial market and one that's less sort of susceptible to uh, using natural gas as a weapon uh, on their neighbors or on Western Europe. So. Uh, I think there's going to be an abundance and a much more commercial natural gas market here. Yes, yes. Now, there is a growing voice for unrestricted trade in hydrocarbons, especially oil and gas markets uh, across many nations, including probably United States. Do you think it will happen? And if it does, what impact do you see on the global markets? I'm sorry. Could you repeat the first part of that thing that broke up? There is a growing voice for unrestricted trade in hydrocarbon, that means oil and gas markets. Now, do you, it's not just United States, but across many other nations, this is, you know, uh, there is a growing voice for that. Now, do you think it will happen, unrestricted trade in hydrocarbons? And if it does happen, unrestricted trade, what impact do you see on the global energy markets? I think I'll address the second part of that first. I think if we had the unrestricted trade, uh, it would make for a more efficient global market because there are a tremendous amount of inefficiencies that are still with us uh, that have been with us dating back to the beginning of the energy market and oil in the late 70s with the North Sea spot market. If you look at some of the largest producers, particularly those in OPEC, um, they don't really encourage a free market of trade in their oil. They really limit uh, their sales to end users or refiners. They don't allow retrade. Um, and um, that, I think, uh, reduces transparency, reduces liquidity, and reduces efficiency. So. Uh, in a future where some of the largest producers, not just the North Sea or the U.S., but uh, some of those in OPEC that allowed much more free trade in their own grades or their own crudes, uh, that would make – you see it much more in the refined products than you do the crude. Uh, many nations still view you know, their crude as a very special sovereign resource that they want to maintain uh, as much control over as possible. Right, right. Now, now, energy security challenges, as we talked earlier also, it comes from nations, governments, and the policies. And uh, nation, what we face in a, I mean, even today, what we face in a digital global age, because of the uh, nation's government policies, the complex energy challenges are not simple. What is the best way for governments, from your perspective, to address the energy security challenges through regulatory and policy, you know, uh, decisions that they make? Well, I think there needs to be a bit more realism, and uh, I think uh, I know this could be viewed as a bit naive, but a little bit less political posturing because I think you can use a great example in the U.S., uh, you know, sort of the debate over pipelines and the construction of pipelines. I'll give two examples. A, uh, you know, the Keystone Pipeline never being built. At the end of the day, that may not make that much difference because during the six years that that was being discussed, being debated, uh, being protested, what have you, uh, scores of other pipelines were built uh, 
uh, in the same area to move the same molecule. But there was also sort of this notion too during that same period of time where we saw a tremendous boost in the crude by rail business or where they were, went from moving very little crude to tremendous amounts of crude, almost a million barrels a day of crude by railroad. Clearly moving it by railroad is less efficient. Clearly moving it by railroad is less environmentally friendly and clearly moving it by railroad creates a tremendous amount of potential environmental risk going forward. Yet, that was somehow politically acceptable when symbolically uh, a single pipeline across the mid-continent wasn't. Uh, I think anybody that's stepped back and looked at a pipeline grid map in the U.S., whether it's crude oil, refined products, or natural gas, uh, would quickly realize that pipelines are absolutely everywhere already. Yes, yes, no, that's very true. And the complex securities that are roads or uh, tankers or, you know, trains that uh, transport the crude, that brings, that makes it much more complex. So I hear your point on that. Now, unlike the globally integrated oil market, natural gas markets are segmented due to uh, limited pipeline connections and high transportation costs for globally traded liquefied natural gas. Now, what securities does this bring to global energy markets? Well, it makes the market less efficient because you just don't have the free flexibility to move uh, the energy molecules in the form of natural gas as needed. You know, if there's particularly cold winter in Europe or a particularly cold event even in the northeastern U.S., these regions can become incredibly isolated and their pricing will reflect that in that our natural gas, the guard, and likewise the same thing can unfold in Europe too. So, uh, you know, part of it is just logistics. It's difficult to build a pipeline, so we have to have the LNG, and obviously there's a lag time there. But going forward, um, the flexibility provided by the new LNG export capacity, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in Australia, whether it's along the U.S. Gulf Coast, is going to make a huge difference and really take that next step to integrating the market like we already see with oil and products. Yes, yes, no, that's very true. Now, let's talk about the uh, pressure points of the global energy markets. Uh, for the security of the global energy markets, what are some important pressure points that you see that United States need to monitor, especially, you know, if you're looking at the uh, excess of, you know, uh, our energy requirements? Um, well, I think... Uh Looking at it globally and looking at oil, a lot of really sensitive uh, pressure points right now geopolitically uh, that could become sort of fulcrum going forward. Um, and many of them aren't even in the Middle East. I would think that West Africa is one we have to watch very closely because both Angola and Nigeria have uh, done a tremendous amount in terms of providing additional crude oil uh, capacity expansions in the last few years. Uh, but they're bumping up against some of the problems they faced in the past, whether it's, you know, lack of investment or, or more critically, um, you know, instability in the Niger Delta and Nigeria directly affecting the ability to export food. Case in point right now, just since February, you know, we've seen attacks on key export terminals, uh, one in Forcados, one at Grass River. That's right now controlling about 400,000 barrels a day. That bubbles up unexpectedly. And right now that's not an issue because obviously we've got shale production and plenty of oil and in inventory, but uh, we can't really control when that bulk is up. Likewise, another good example would be Venezuela right now. So far, their production has been largely steady, but they're facing a huge fiscal crisis that could directly impact their ability to export. And in their case, they need to import light crude and diluents uh, to lighten up their crude uh, to make a lot of that heavy crude available for exports. If they can't afford to purchase that or they don't have the foreign reserves and liquidity to do that, 
then their import exports could go down just because they don't have the material they need to make the crude they need suitable for export. Um, and obviously, we have a, a lot unfolding in the Middle East. Uh, there's not a big geopolitical premium right now in the market tied to that. I think that's fairly valid. But we are beginning to see you know, less consistency in terms of Iraq's ability to maintain its new higher level of exports. And we all know that, in general, there's not a lot of spare production capacity, uh, virtually zero and not know that uh, plus or minus a little bit, global demand is going to grow by more than a million barrels a year each and every year going forward. Right, I know that. I, I understand what you're saying. Now, it seems that the security of supply is the defining principle behind this uh, choke points that we are talking about that is the production transportation distribution and perhaps production transportation are more relevant to uh, the security that we are talking about now how secure not just not for united states but how secure is the global supply from a production and transportation standpoint if you are if you look at you know the overall global uh, supply chain energy supply chain well there's still a lot of the natural geographic choke points too. I mean, whether you're talking about um, the Suez Canal and the Suez uh, pipeline linking the Red Sea to the Mediterranean, uh, whether you're talking about the pipelines that move uh, Central Asian crude and Iraqi crude uh, through Turkey into the Mediterranean, whether you're talking about the Straits of Hormuz, I mean, all the choke points that were problematic for us 20, 30, and 40 years ago are still problematic for us because all these crudes are moving. At the very least, you know, it creates situations where uh, if those aren't available, the distance traveled is going to be far greater. And anytime the distance traveled for those barrels is greater, that reduces your capacity to deliver by a material amount. So that's one area that hasn't changed. And really it's become more important because obviously we're seeing huge growth in uh, the Indian subcontinent and in China, uh, much of it derived from crude oil uh, imports. Uh, so it's not just the U.S. now. Uh, it's not just Europe. Uh, it's bi-directional, whether it's East Suez or heading into the Atlantic Basin. Yes, yes, that is very true. Now, it seems that the physical security, the way I describe is geosecurity. So the geosecurity and cybersecurity are the pressure point in production, transportation, and distribution. Now, are they viewed in silo or nations have an integrated approach to these pressure points? Because, because of this you know, digitalization capability and digitalization uh, process that is going on, and because of the internet and the information communication technology, everything is changing. Our cyberspace has changed each and every industry, and energy industry is no different, though it is you know, changing a bit slower, slower than you know, the other industries, but it is still changing. And that makes the interconnectedness and interdependencies between the geosecurity and cybersecurity uh, play a very significant role. So do you, from your perspective, do you, what is your observation about how in the industry and the nations are having an approach uh, to integrated approach to these pressure points, or uh, is it like silo that they only cybersecurity people focus on the cybersecurity aspect, and geo physical security, geosecurity people focus on that, or there is a real, you know, integrated, unified approach to address this uh, growing, you know, interconnectedness and interdependencies. Uh, I think there's a huge uh, way to go uh, and a long path to travel to where you have uh, an integrated approach. I think that's even true when you're looking at some of the more uh, developed oil industries 
uh, whether it's in places like Saudi Arabia with a well-advanced state oil company or even with the U.S. and international majors. Um, you know, the cyber and the technology and the digital nature of it makes security that much more difficult because, as we all know, each ship, each partial can be tracked uh, both by the good guys and the bad guys. So there's a lot more transparency and that can work for good or for ill. I also think that so many producers, you know, particularly in a low price environment, but even this was true at higher prices, you know, are struggling to make ends meet fiscally. And that oftentimes takes their eye off the ball in the sense that um, they don't have the focus, nor do they have the capital to invest in the type of infrastructure, invest in the type of manpower, or invest in the skill sets they need to really address it, let alone on a highly integrated nature. So, uh, you know, there's a huge gap to fill there. Uh, and I think that's why, you know, quite frankly, even though we've come a long way digitally, uh, in many ways, when you look at the choke points and the problems in the oil industry, they feel very much the same as they felt, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, the information's there, but it's been integrated uh, not nearly far enough. Right, right, and that makes it more vulnerable also. Now, if you talk about the crisis in Ukraine, that is probably the latest reminder of how energy permeates the geopolitical landscape and is still a very fundamental element of national power. It could be a source of political leverage or it could be a great vulnerability for uh, some uh, nations and can promote either economic prosperity or instability. Can you share your insights as to how geopolitics impacts global energy markets, you know, especially with the reference to Ukraine? Well, I think with Ukraine, it's a good example. We were talking about the European gas market earlier. Uh, if you go back uh, one year, two years, you can see where uh, natural gas was being wielded as a very specific weapon directed at Ukraine and or anybody in Europe that was supporting Ukraine uh, relative to um, the Russian leadership. Uh, going forward, that may still exist, uh, but it's much more difficult now for those commercial terms. The reality of the situation now is that uh, Russia has leverage but can't use it because they are in a cash-constrained uh, situation and they now have to compete uh, much more aggressively with uh, uh, LNG-based natural gas supplies. So that's evolved quite dramatically from one uh, from a situation where you know Russia could use their natural gas with a tremendous amount of leverage to one where uh, that's not likely to be the case uh, going forward and less likely to be the case as we get more and more LNG export capability around the world. Right, right. No, that is true. Now the global uh, energy market trend is causing some nations to assume new roles in the production, consumption, distribution, and trade of energy. Now, as the oil demand in advanced economies, that is the Western economies, is in a slow structural decline, and developing economies now dominate energy consumption growth, the geographic center of global energy demand seems to have moved from west to east. If market changes are one reason to examine the changing relationship between Energy and national security market failures also plays an obviously uh, important role. Now, in the context of interconnected or interdependent energy markets, do you think that the shared energy security needs uh, to be the priority and focus of each nation? And will that ever happen that, you know, nations collectively will look at this uh, shared energy risk and shared energy security at the same time? Uh, I think they will. I think they'll. it'll take time, but I think they absolutely 
absolutely have. And your point, your point about the geographical shift and whether the mangrove is, is going to be important because, you know, you're going from a very uh, westernized Atlantic Basin focused market to one that's rapidly uh, evolving on many fronts, not just commercially, but also politically and otherwise. Um, you know, you're, you're moving from areas where, you know, you've had uh, established democracy for a long period of time uh, to fledgling democracy and countries that are just now finding their um, economic wheels. So um, absolutely, I think there will happy coordination and, you know, Maybe, maybe it would be a consumer type of, uh, I don't want to call it a cartel or an OPEC-like organization, but maybe some of the largest uh, importers or consumers of crude oil and refined products, uh, whether it's China, India, or any of the smaller developing nations there, they will have to get together because it will be in their best interest to coordinate and have some sort of um, pushback against producers, but also just you know shared experience, whether it's on the security front, um, uh, whether it's on the economic front or, or what have you, but uh, absolutely. Yes, yes. No, I, I, I absolutely agree on that. I think you were right that, you know, it would be more regional to start with where they always start working together for the benefit of their security. Now, renewables have penetrated the electricity sector and transportation in the form of biofuels, I think, and due to subsidies, some other you know national policy supports and cost reduction they have they have made a lot of headways now wind and solar are probably among the fastest growing sources of electricity uh, but are they, they are growing from a very small base and the capacity also is very small compared to existing levels of fossil fuel generation that we see you know across nation now ethanol fuel has grown to roughly 10 percent from uh, what I you know came across the information, come uh, 10% of the gasoline pool. Now, do you think renewables has the potential to displace oil and fossil fuels in the coming years? Um, <clears throat> yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we have tremendous growth, and I'm going to use the wind and the solar power, but you can't have that alone really for those to work most efficiently they have to be integrated to a system where you have good baseload and that baseload is going to have to come from whether whether it's hydrocarbon or whether it's nuclear uh, or in some cases hydropower so you know because of the huge variability in demand across the day because of the huge variability in supply of wind and solar due to weather and time of day um, they can never stand on their own but you can see where you get a much more integrated system where uh, solar and wind complement baseload natural gas or additional nuclear plants. And certainly that will spell for the end of the, and we're already seeing it, you know, coal fire and oil fired plants. That'll happen first in North America. It's obviously well underway, but I would think that we will see that sort of evolve on a global basis. Um, you know, but it's just very expensive because you have to build both capacities simultaneously. You can get too far ahead in the wind and the solar, and all of a sudden you don't have the, the power you need at the time of day you need in the place you need. You, know, you still have to have that base load. And that base load is going to have to come from natural gas, uh, nuclear, or something that's dependable. Yes, yes, that is true. That is true. Now, uh, it seems that the complex uh, political and security landscape in Middle East and also North Africa combined with low oil prices that we have uh, currently, uh, it, it creates unprecedented security challenges for not only the policymakers in those nations, but I think all nations. Uh, what are those challenges? Because uh, these two regions bring so many complex security challenges. 
and with the low oil price it is uh, creating some critical risk that we all nations will have to face well i think um addressing north africa and west africa specifically that presents some very unique challenges to europe a you know europe's own domestic production north sea crude production has sort of peaked out and should go into sort of long-term terminal decline here and really they depend on that proximity that overall nature you know northern african crude whether it's algerian crude or libyan crude or egyptian crude or west african crude from gabon nigeria or angola have been sort of staple uh, in terms of providing short haul supplies and you're much more sensitive when you lose those because there's just not that lag time and um, you know on all those examples you've got you know incredible fiscal pressures on the governments and in some cases obviously you have a much more acute uh, political problem like in the case of Libya where you know the infrastructure is controlled by warring factions on an even day you know you're, you're lucky to have any progress or movement of barrels out into the global marketplace. Right, and they also have the threat of ISIS, right, in those two regions and uh, even in North Africa, they also have a lot of internal conflicts and also with the neighboring countries, so, uh, and the leadership is also not very effective, so they're, they're very complex security challenges that, you know, the energy sector faces over there. Now, what role does the growing possibility of decarbonization of the global economy plays in the energy security? We are not going to address uh, more of this, but just very briefly how it impacts the current energy markets. Uh, the decarbonization? Yes. Well, obviously, you know, some of those countries that are almost entirely dependent on oil exports are going to have a huge issues going forward because, as you alluded to earlier, uh, even with growth in the developing uh, eastern economies, east to Suez, um, is that enough to offset um, the type of slowdown or reversal of demand growth we're seeing in some of the largest uh, G20 or uh, industrialized countries? We also haven't even addressed the impact of a technological breakthrough, whether it's you know battery storage capabilities, whether it's superconductivity, uh, whether something just on the simple fuel efficiency front in automobiles and motor vehicles, those could all be game changers. And I think it's fairly naive not to recognize that that potential exists out there. So it could create some dramatic problems um, for some of these smaller exporters that are 100% dependent, but it could have you know a huge impact on some of the larger exporters too. I don't think anybody, whether they're OPEC, uh, GCC countries in uh, northern and western Africa are going to be immune from uh, a step change or a ratchet or a game changer like that. That is true. That is true. Now, it seems, let's talk about the, our neighbor uh, country, Mexico. It seems that they are going through some energy reform. What do you think is the impact of this Mexico's energy reform? Well, I would divide it in two. So I'll start with where it's been very successful and very rapid. Uh, in the power sector and in the natural gas sector, we've seen a huge uh, evolution over the past two years. Uh, we've seen a lot of independent power producers go in there to uh, beef up electrical generation capacity. They're trying to bring electricity to broader swaths of the country. Uh, they're trying to make the grid more dependable across the entire country. And that's uh, led to a huge uptick in U.S. natural gas exports to Mexico to sort of integrate those two countries. Eventually, Mexico will be to produce their own natural gas and scale. That will require time and capital that may not be available to them right now. But in general, that's what they've pressed on with the most level of success. 
Um, the flip side is that uh, the outside investment they need to sort of stem the downturn that's now basically a decade old in their crude production uh, has been slower. Uh, and that's partly due to, you know, the type of properties that were made available early on and partly due to the fact that we just had a tremendous amount of uh, pain in the global industry tied to low oil prices. It's just not that investment capital. When you're flashing CapEx across the globe, when you're flashing body counts of companies across the globe, you know, it certainly takes the uh, motivation away and makes, you know, a foray into a new property or a new industry in Mexico a little bit less attractive. Um, that's not to say the long-term prospects aren't there, but this is more of a hiccup uh, there. One of Mexico's largest issues, and I think they're addressing it right now, is refining. Their oil demand, their gasoline demand, their diesel demand is growing tremendously, and the refining capacity uh, is not. Um, they've got tens of billions of dollars of uh, upgrades and repairs and tweaks they need to do, and even if they did them, they're still in a position where they have to increasingly import refined products, and that's a very difficult position to be in where you're exporting crude at a diminishing rate and then importing refined products at an increasing rate. So that's something they have to address right away. So, you know, that's the real pressure point for them. Um, you know, crude long-term, they'll be fine, but it's going to take some time for the industry to turn around. And they've made a huge uh, progress in the power and natural gas side, and that should continue. Right, right. No, I, I agree with your point on that. But it seems the investments also are moving away from deep water and shale resources towards shallow water and onshore resources. And it seems if we talk about Mexico, that many of these are still in the hands of Pemex, right? And are more accessible. Uh, to the private industry then you know probably the public sector over there in Mexico is that uh, accurate yes because they they, uh, they opened up their upstream properties sort of in different categories and um, you know, they really wanted the technological expertise of the US majors the people who are active in deep water Gulf of Mexico to bring that technology bring that capital down to help them sort of turn the tide on their existing offshore production because that would give them a sort of an immediate uh, boost turnaround to help mitigate their natural problems. Um, you know, they were all, you know, they, they offered some property, you know, there was some interest, but um, you know, it wasn't a wholesale approach. It wasn't a wide open approach. They were much more wide open about natural gas and power. Uh, they're becoming much more flexible at refining. I suspect that over time and as their capital requirements grow on uh, their need for long-term partners growth, become much more wide open on uh, the type of assets and properties they look at water water but also export it all there's a huge likelihood that the Eagleford shale in South Texas uh, extends over into northern Mexico and that would create potentially a lot of natural gas resources very close to some of their uh, large industrial cities like Monterey it would be a great fit but all this takes time and money. Yes, it does. It does. Now, there are some who say that the oil production in the U.S. does not matter much to the global oil markets. Is that an accurate analysis? Uh, I don't believe so. I mean, um, I think we can see the impact of U.S. production just over the last three years as we went from, you know, 5 million to 6 million barrels a day all the way up to 9.6 million barrels a day. It did have a material impact uh, on prices, on supply. It did sort of changed the balance in the sense that 
You know, the U.S. stopped importing crude from Nigeria and the North Sea, uh, maintained imports from Mexico, and Canada, but that was a quality issue. Um, I think, you know, welding or melding together the notion of crude production in the U.S. going up and the free ability to export that crude uh, takes on added significance. And unfortunately, those rules weren't changed uh, until very recently, so we didn't really see that. Uh, when uh, crude production was on its way up, but in the long term, that will be a very significant development in terms of balancing the Atlantic base and, and balancing the globe. I don't think the U.S. will ever be in a position where they're not importing some crude, but I think their net import-export balance already looks much leaner, and over time, you will see the U.S. become a significant exporter of light crude, a growing exporter of products, which you've already seen, uh, uh, so it has to have an impact because, you know, it's not just the crude either. It's the refined products. It's the NGLs. They're making huge inroads. They're spending a tremendous amount of money investing in the capability of exporting uh, propane, butane, ethane around the world. And that's something we really have never seen before. That is true. That is very true. Now, uh, looking at the current, you know, energy pool that we have, energy, different uh, sources of energy, and uh, the ability of the nation to use it effectively. In 2016, from your assessment, which nations you would say that are energy secure at this point? Uh, which nations are energy secure at this point? Yes. I would say very few. I would say that uh, one could argue that the U.S. still has some vulnerability in that we still need a large volume of uh, crude from Saudi Arabia, uh, Venezuela, and Mexico to match our refining requirements for our sophisticated upgrade refineries on the Gulf Coast. So we clearly still can be touched by choke points in the Middle East, uh, in Latin America. Um, I would say the only country that feels truly energy independent would be something like Canada, where they have you know, the refining capacity, the petrochemical capacity, the natural gas production capacity, and the crude production capacity to be self-sufficient. Likewise, in Europe, only countries there, I would think, would be countries like Norway, who's very similar to Canada, in that they have locally the refining petrochemical capacity and the molecules, both natural gas and crude, to supply those. But it's a very, very rare situation. I, mean, I think the U.S. has made huge progress, yes. uh, but... There's no way they could consider themselves energy secure when you have that You're right, not yet. Very true, not yet. You are absolutely right. Now, the collapse of crude oil prices, where are the markets going, John? Um, well, I try to avoid forecasting prices, but I will say this. Um, the drop in prices had a lot of you know, slowdown in demand in 2014. I mean, there was a great deal made about the war between shale and OPEC and what have you. But at the end of the day, a lot of what occurred was sort of a confluence of events. Uh, that's a very convenient narrative. I'm not saying it didn't play a role, but it was one of many variables. Going forward, I think this market has found good support. That support may have been at $26, $28, $30, and certainly far lower than what people would have expected. But I think that uh, we've seen a significant low put in place. That said, uh, you know, going forward, it's going to be a very different market environment. You know, we do see abundant evidence through sharply reduced U.S. and non-OPEC production, through slower than expected OPEC supply growth, 
through persistently strong U.S. demand growth, that the market will begin rebalancing and begin destocking in the back half of this year for the first time since 2013. But it's going to be a long road ahead. But we also see at the same time a market where producers, particularly in North America and particularly in some of the more prolific shale basins like the Permian Basin, can make good rates of return at 55 52 58 or $60 WPI. And if that's the case, it means that prices don't have to go back to 70 or 90 to generate a huge rebound in shale, U.S., and non-OPEC supply. If that begins to be translated elsewhere, whether it's Argentina, whether it's Poland, whether it's China, anywhere that they've located shale reserves in abundance, it suggests that uh, a weak market may be 25 to $30, but a very strong market uh, may be more like 70 to 75 you could see a situation where over the next couple of years that oil demand gets a little bit ahead of oil supply because it's going to take some time, even with decent prices, for the U.S. oil industry to dial back up. And with these huge capital expenditure cuts we've seen across the board globally, you know, there was a lot of big projects that have been put on hold and there's a lot of lag time. So, you know, the market could on a temporary basis sort of be tighter than expected, but it seems to me that the era of 80 or 90 or $100 crude is just not sustainable given advances in finding shale and manufacturing and mining shale, as I call it, uh, the abundance of resources and the fact that, you know, we all always have hanging over us these technological and um, uh, scientific advances that could be the game changers in terms of um, efficiency, auto bills, electric generation, electric storage, electric transmission, what have you. Yes, yes, that, that is absolutely true. Now, let's talk about Japan for a minute. They, it seems that uh, they have decided to close virtually all of its nuclear fleet. How have the energy markets been impacted by this decision? Yeah, that's uh, an, an excellent question. So we've seen over the, since uh, Fukushima, we've seen uh, a pretty large pickup in um, utility fuel burn in the sense that they've been using fuel oil, uh, direct burning crude of certain grades that are of uh, the waxy, low sulfur nature, uh, and obviously picking it up on the LNG front as well. Um, we did see some of those plants begin to come back, but obviously we're now going through a period where you know earthquakes are being, again, a major factor there, a major problem there, and it could slow down toward the overall return. So. Um, Japan is going to be key because it adds incrementally to the global oil demand because basically you're having to burn fuel or uh, crude oil to replace those lost nuclear uh, generation capacity. Uh, it could help balance the LNG market, which is working a little bit supply heavy uh, with the new LNG export capacity in Australia, a couple of what we're seeing in the U.S. and what's being dialed up in the Middle East uh, in particular. So. Um, it's significant, and uh, you know, I would also point out to the fact that uh, Germany, you know, in response to Fukushima a few years ago, also really moved away from nuclear and went back to more traditional sourcing of hydro, you know, hydrocarbons, whether it was crude oil, fuel, or natural gas. So, the impact has been significant. It's been multi-year now, and given the events of just the last week or so um, in Japan with the earthquakes, it seems like it's an extended duration of their dependency on uh, crude oil, fuel, and LNG. Yes, yes, that is very true. Now, if we talk about United States, 
we have one of the lowest average electricity prices probably if you uh, you know look at the, the all the developed countries uh, and that is probably because of the large uh, fleet of nuclear plants that we have in united states but it seems that some of the plants will be closing or are in the process of closing what impact do you see because of that um i think you have to look at it the us by region uh so there's certain regions that are going to be affected adversely so uh the west coast would be a good example they obviously lost uh, the San Onfre nuclear power plant could not be repaired, it was closed permanently. So Southern California is, is about 2,500 megawatts right there. Uh, there's a growing debate over relicensing of the Diablo Canyon plant. Um, that's still years away, uh, but the fact that it's even being discussed uh, worries some because that's another you know 2,500 megawatts of capacity that's going to have to replace that you just can't replace with solar or wind. That's going to have to be a significant amount of gas fire generation. Uh, being built on a grassroots basis. You know, we've lost a lot of coal generation capacity in parts of the Midwest and the Southeast, but you can view those regions very differently because in the Midwest, you have sort of aging nuclear plants. Um, I don't think there's a lot of imminent retirements, but there's certainly not a lot of new capacity. Um, in the Southeast, it's quite different. You know, you've lost a lot of coal plants, uh, but there, there's about five nuclear power plants that are slated to come on stream, brand new units over the the next couple of years, starting in 2018, 2019, 2020, most in Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee. So each region has dealt with it very differently. But um, uh, much like natural gas prices uh, and to some extent power prices, you're going to see regional disparities in places like Texas and Southeast. Power prices may remain low. In places like California in the Northeast and the Midwest, uh, those prices could move up materially both on an outright basis and relative to other parts of the country and other parts of the world. Right, right. Now I agree with your assessment. That is very likely to happen. Now, we saw that Japan and Germany, they're you know, in the process of getting out of this nuclear power. At the same time, you will see that countries like China, they're increasing their nuclear power because they want to boost their energy security and they have a big problem with the pollution. So they want to reduce emissions of air pollutants. Uh, so. Is, what, 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 what is your assessment about this China's approach to power generation? Well, I think China is, you know, looking to move away from coal for obvious reasons from, you know, a societal cost point of view, pollution point of view. Um, there's the issue of them building a lot of nuclear power plants. You obviously have the big hydroelectric project, the, uh, the Three Gorges Dam, I believe. Uh, and also, as you recall, about a year ago that China signed uh, those long-term, they're, they're theoretical at this point, but those long-term gas supply contracts uh, with uh, Russia uh, to move natural gas uh, down into China from Russia. So they're taking multiple steps, A, to ensure that they have a lot of abundant, cheap energy in the future, uh, uh, an energy that's not just based on coal, because if their cities aren't livable, um, it's, it's kind of counterproductive. But we've seen instances lately where... Uh, in certain parts of China, certain regions, prices for natural gas have gotten very expensive. So um, you can see where they need to sort of invest locally and secure these sources from outside China to make sure that they don't have problems that sort of uh, uh, limit their economic growth, whether it's you know regionally, locally, or 
become more macro across the country. Yes. So nuclear is part of it. Natural gas is part of it. Um, we've also seen them in the just electric transmission, you know, to have much bigger and higher voltage lines to move uh, uh, power across the country because, you know, much like we see in many places, there's a mismatch between where a lot of the abundant power is and where it's actually needed for uh, manufacturing and uh, right. population growth. Right, right. Now, talking about the natural gas, it seems in Europe, natural gas costs uh, almost three times more than what it costs here in the United States. And there, there is a very, you know, big debate going on about this. Where is the debate and energy policy decisions uh, expected to go, especially, you know, from the perspective of natural gas? I do think that's one uh, area where the markets are working now because just in the last six to nine months, we've seen a fairly material drop in European gas prices, whether it's in the UK or some of the major hubs uh, in Northwest Europe, like in the Netherlands. Uh, and we're seeing that sort of equalization. All of a sudden, the market's reflecting, you know, the availability of Russian gas, the availability of uh, LNG, the increased uh, likelihood that U.S. LNG will be going to Europe, not Asia. So uh, I do think finally uh, there is some integration. Uh, they still traded a premium to the U.S., uh, but the premium now seems to be more in line with just the cost of freight uh, and, you know, sort of the... Uh, midstream or transportation nuances and not some sort of uh, uh, regulatory, uh, tax-driven, um, carbon-driven, you know, artificial pricing. It does seem like we're getting to the point where uh, these markets are becoming more closely tied, and that's really been a phenomenon of the last, uh, really last less than a year. I see, I see. What, what, what future do you see of Russian natural gas exports? Russian? Yes. Um, I think they will be maintained. I mean, it's very important right now for Russia to maintain revenue on all fronts. And, um, you know, their crude oil production has been making uh, slight gains and establishing new records, but it's on a fairly marginal basis. And I think the general view is that uh, that's an area where they're going to be struggling to maintain production and maintain revenues. Natural gas is an area that works for them and they have good markets. So I think they're going to be more aggressive, but I think that um, – that's a growth area for them. And I think that's also uh, borne out in those longer term deals we just talked about with China. Those were 20 year deals. Uh, there were, I think, at least two of them signed. And the volumes were very, very uh, impressive in terms of scope. So uh, I think they're uh, seeing that natural gas has a very big future for them uh, going forward. And uh, they're making a lot of efforts there. Again, it comes back to one of our other questions too will they wield it as a weapon going forward? Um, I think that's increasingly less likely because I just don't think they have the fiscal or financial luxury or ability to do that now. Things can change, but I don't think it's going to change anytime very soon. Right, right. Now, let's let's go back to Iran for a minute. Now, it seems that they have a lot of internal political competition for power, and that absolutely, you know, obviously it impacts the energy industry and foreign policy. Um, what impact do you see because of that uh, on the geopolitics as well as the world energy markets, the internal politics of the Iran? Well, the uncertainty there has been huge because obviously they're a big natural gas supplier. Uh, they're a big global uh, exporter of uh, methanol, and they're expected to grow uh, leaps and bounds there uh, in the post-sanctions era, and that's going to be a big fuel for um, 
petrochemical development and many other uh, applications in markets east of Suez. Uh, but that uncertainty causes this confusion like we saw late last year. You know, who do you believe? Um, you know, can you depend on what they say in terms of the type of volumes they're going to be producing? Um, you know, do you have a high degree of confidence in their forecast that they're going to be at a certain level by a certain time? You know, right now, um, the answer would be no. You know, we know that they're, you know, have the opportunity to increase crude production and exports. We know they have the opportunity uh, to increase uh, petrochemical refined product exports. Do we have a great deal of confidence uh, in timelines or volumes? No. And that's complicated by the fact that you just don't have that level of transparency uh, because you really never know exactly who's pulling the lever levels because of the internal strife. Um, that's true of other countries, but obviously right now, a lot of new incremental crude supplies for this year in particular, uh, virtually all the new incremental crude supplies are expected to come from Iran. So it took on that much more gravitas because you know, non-OPEC production outside of Iran was flat and non-OPEC production was declining. So the inability to really get a handle on what Iran's going to do and achieve is very problematic for the markets and forecasting and planning budgeting, everything. Yes, very true, very true. Now, although energy is the most basic resource necessity across any nation or any industry, if you talk about it, the turbulent global consumer demand, falling oil prices, disruptive innovations, complex regulatory challenges, and rapidly changing energy technologies and processes in cyberspace, geospace, and space brings this industry great challenges and complexities. We didn't get much time to address today uh, the technologies that we will be uh, seeing in near future in the coming years from space. Or we couldn't you know, address the cybersecurity challenges and the integration challenges of cyberspace, geospace, and space. Uh, but these all, you know, brings a lot of complex uh, opportunities as well as challenges. Uh, where do you see an energy industry going from here? Well, obviously, all those technologies help, in, I think, greatly in particularly the uh, measurement and transportation of fuels, whether it's or energy, whether it's power, natural gas, oil, whether it's by pipeline, by wire, and by ship. And, you know, growing efficiencies there, you know, better understanding of uh, how things get to market uh, is going to be huge. Um, also, from a safety and environmental point of view, the ability to track every molecule now, the ability to know when there's a problem almost instantly uh, is a big plus in the sense that you're not going to have um, as large environmental impacts when you have a negative event, whether it's a, a rail problem, a pipeline problem, a transmission problem, a uh, refinery problem. Um, but, um, you know, as we were talking about earlier, there's a long way to go. I mean, right now, the industry is tremendously capital constrained. You know, their focus is on how to create revenue, how to create cash flow, how to cover debt service, how to cover their future capex to, to continuation of the process. So I think, unfortunately, uh, they're probably falling behind par or behind uh, where they could have been and where they would like to be uh, on many of those areas. But obviously, you know, those are all huge game changers because any one of those, you know, if it can increase efficiency, whether, again, it's from a transportation point of view or a, technical, a technological point of view or a, even in terms of discovery point of view, um, can make it seem like we have a much 
higher degree of supply in the market. You know, if it's that much easier to get barrels or molecules or electrons from where they start to where they need it, um, seemingly you have more supply, even if the actual number is not changed. Yes. Yes, that is very true. Now, uh, John, this is your, uh, you do this day in, day out. You are, every hour you, uh, you know, keep an eye on the global markets. You study them. You, uh, you know, analyze them. You, and you try to, you know, come up with uh, ways of managing the complex security challenges that arises in the global energy markets. What would you, what keeps you really concerned? You know, what are your most concerns at this point for the global energy markets? And if you had the power to change anything, what would you change in how the global energy markets operate? Um, I would, uh, I'm a big fan of global energy markets and free markets in general. But I think from an industry point of view, whether you're a state oil company or whether you're an international major or whether you're an independent producer, uh, the focus should be on volumes. The focus should be on uh, investment return and yield to your capital partners, whether it's investors, public and private, private equity, banks, what have you, and that you really need to um, not speculate. Um, you know, there's there's a rule for speculation. It provides liquidity. Again, I'm a proponent of the markets and free markets, but if you're running an oil company, you know, big or small, state or public, private, you know, the focus should be on you know, ramping up your volumes and becoming the most efficient manufacturer of those molecules. It's not about the commodity markets bailing you out. It's about your technology, your skills, your access to capital. And, you know, the person with the most efficient access to capital with a huge benefit and the type of assets you own is focusing on the core business, you know, your assets, the capital you need, and being the most efficient and getting those out of the ground into the market because that's what's going to make your revenues and that's going to make your return. So uh, there's been a great deal, I think, of lessons learned over the last two years about um, hoping, praying, speculating that the market's going to help you out. Um, you need to be able to, uh, you know, uh, survive even under, you know, very trying market circumstances. Sometimes it's through surprises, sometimes it's through low price. But at the end of the day, it's about focusing on your core business. Very true. Very, very good points and very good advice that you, you know, uh, gave there, John. Uh, I really appreciate that uh, you took so much uh, time of your busy schedule and you uh, came on Risk Roundup and you shared your analysis and your thoughts and your input about the global energy markets and how uh, it impacts the security risk. So we really thank you for that. We are grateful that you uh, came and you know shared your thoughts. And I hope that as we do more research in the coming years and months, that you will be willing to come on Risk Roundup up again and share your insights for the benefit of our global viewers and listeners so thank you so much john thank you for having me on it was a pleasure i enjoyed the conversation thoroughly and uh, uh all the best wonderful thank you so much john now while the journey of hydrocarbons that started approximately 150 years ago to now has been filled with major controversies and very complex relationships the truth remains in spite of that the truth remains that the nations still live in the fossil fuel age 
Many oil producing nations seems to be in visible turmoil today. If stability, security and sustainability are to be achieved for the energy markets, it's very important to identify, evaluate and understand the security risk facing the energy industry today and in the coming tomorrow. Evaluating the energy markets requires an integrated and interdisciplinary approach. Risk groups, Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Centers are created for this very purpose and reason so that we can collectively identify, evaluate and manage the risk facing NGIOA in CGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. And we can discuss, debate, and define necessary framework, structure, processes, tools, and technologies to manage the security risk of not only the digital global age, but also of the coming technological superconvergence. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It's not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security, so if you build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayeshree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.